We are rapidly coming to the close of this letter. And I find myself wanting to... Exactly. (laughs) Wanting to just extend it and regretting times that I maybe hurried through portions and... um, I think probably especially now because we come to this closing list of personal greetings where the heart of Paul is so clearly on display. I just, I want to live here for a while. But there's much more Bible to teach and there's always a next Sunday until the Lord returns and so we will continue on this morning. Beginning in verse one, Romans chapter 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at can pray that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, it's the same Priscilla and Aquila from Acts, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. It's pretty high praise, isn't it? Greet also, verse 5, the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, not Epinatus. That's some kind of a dish. But look at this. Who was the first, first convert to Christ in Asia? Now, of course, Asia is the, it's the province of Asia Minor, what we know as Western Turkey. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Bless that father who is taking care of his son. That's in some of the manuscripts, not... Verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphania and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus. It's a, it's a conjunction. It means lover of the word. Julia, 
Nereus and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we stand before you with your word in our hands, listening to um, an, an affectionate greeting and warm praise inspired in the spirit by the ancient apostle. I pray you would teach us by your will and by your word, pray you would make us into your image so that we, like many of these listed, might also be laborers in Christ, hard workers in Christ, useful and fruitful servants in Christ. Make it so by the renewing power of your word, for we will never be, we will never fulfill any of those attributes on our own. But if we would sit at the feet of our teacher, Jesus, through the Spirit, uh, you have promised to equip us, and so we ask that you would do so. Even now, as we offer to you our attention, in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Over the last 30 years of serving in the church, I have had many mentors. The earliest of which that I can remember is a, is a, 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 a short, round, silver-haired man named Howard Pyle. Howard was a sweet man in our church. He taught me how to play the bass guitar. He was, to my church, what my father-in-law George is to our church. Quick with a smile. All the kids loved him. He always had candy in his pockets. And he was a precious, precious man. He made an indelible mark on me. And then over the years, I've had many more. I could list them the way that Paul lists his fellow workers. I could think of the men. Jared Pitero, John Nelson, Scott Cunningham. I could think of many who have taught me little lessons, quick moments, or had long relationships with them over the years. Paul Alexander and Mike Davis. Some are pastors, some are laymen, some are musicians. But there was one mentor of mine who told me something early in my professional career in ministry. These mentorships, of course, began when I was but a child. I'm only 40 years old, but in my professional career, I was told, if you're to be the pastor of a church, you can't be friends with the people in your church. You'll always be alone. Those words, like many others from various mentors, stuck with me. I had to wrestle with them. I had to weigh them. And of course, you have to apply the lesson that you learn, either to dismiss or embrace, correct? I have a hard time agreeing with this particular mentor's synopsis of being a pastor when I read 
Romans chapter 16, right? Clearly, Paul had many people close to him, many people that he loved dearly, many people that he worked alongside, counted upon, cherished for their wisdom and their insight, as much as he is the genius apostle explaining, as Peter said, hard things to people. (laughs) No, Paul loved people. He had many close personal friends in sharp contrast to that poor advice. This closing chapter of Romans includes that exhaustive list of Paul's companions. Those who are either traveling with the letter sent to Rome, or those who are recipients of the letter, or those who have been alongside him in various other parts of the Roman Empire in the seasons past. As with the previous section in Romans 15, There is more to learn from Romans 16 through what is implied than what is explicitly taught. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, but it all isn't interpreted and applied the same way. There is much to be gleaned from these 16 verses by way of implication, even if it is not explicitly taught. A few stats and breakdowns for you by way of introduction. The first 23 verses of this chapter include the word greet 19 times. And when you, when you hear the word greet, I want you to think of the way that the Europeans greet each other with that, you know, that, that peck, that kiss on either cheek that kind of warm, close, right? If we did that when we got together, it'd be like, "What? get out of my, what are you doing? This is the South, man, we shake hands, you know what I'm saying? You get too close, I might have to pull out a concealed carry on you, like, you know what I mean? Like, but when Paul says greet 19 times, he's talking about that kind of warm, affectionate embrace. The way that I sent, uh, a birthday greeting this week through a father to his daughter. I just said, send, send my love to your, the whole family. They're, they were out of town. Greet them. You know, like a warm embrace. 19 times Paul wants people warmly embraced. 33 names, 24 in Rome of those with him Of those in Rome, 17 were men and 7 were women. There were two households, the mother of Rufus and the sister of Narcissus, and nine of them mentioned were with Paul in Corinth, eight men and one woman. A lot of people. What this points us to is the first of three observations we'll make about Paul in this chapter as a whole. We'll consider this week Paul's heart for people, We'll consider next week, as we get into the next section, 17 through 23, Paul's heart for protection. And then we'll close considering week three, Paul's heart for praise. Okay, so you have some sense of what we're doing for the next couple of weeks. This week, we're going to consider Paul's heart for people. And if you're taking notes, Paul's observable heart for people, number one, begins with a special woman. 
It begins with a special woman, number one. Phoebe, I commend to you, Phoebe, a servant, literally a diakonos, which is a gender-neutral term, from which we get the church term and office deacon. She was obviously loved by Paul. Her service to the early church was valued and valuable. She was a diakonos. Now, does that mean she held the official title and office in the church at this port town of Kencray? Odds are, no. Early on, the office didn't exist. The function did. She was respected, she was valued, she was hardworking, and she was a fruitful member of Paul's band of helpers. But the office of deacon wasn't necessarily established immediately in the church. Rather, this is critical, the pattern of service by trustworthy servants in the church later gave way to the office as church polity developed over time. And so a couple of key words there, it's a pattern by trustworthy servants, which later gave way to the office as church polity developed. It would even be a misnomer to say that the seven men selected in Acts chapter 6, they were selected to serve, to diakonos. It would be a misnomer to say they were the first ever deacon board because what you had was a situation that called for a function, not an office. Later, the office was clarified and refined just as various councils and statements and catechesis were developed over time with the church. Jesus established the pattern. The the apostles built upon that pattern. And in time, the church fathers would develop church polity and office. It's important to note, only in so much as we recognize this isn't a statement of office. It's a statement of Phoebe's contribution. Now, this isn't to diminish Phoebe's contribution. In fact, quite the opposite. The goal is simply to have a clear picture in mind. Servants were chosen like Phoebe, like the seven men chosen in Acts 6, who maintained a reputation that is above reproach, who were diligent and sacrificial in their efforts to serve the budding church. And obviously, Phoebe was trustworthy As every historian I can find suggests, she was entrusted with that awesome responsibility, in fact, to carry the letter of Romans from Corinth, from Paul's hand, and deliver it to the elders of the church in Rome. Phoebe was likely a widow or else never married. Most certainly by this point, she was mature in age, mature in stature, wise and productive. 
She is one of several examples in the New Testament that give credence to the church developing the office of deacon and, if you will, deaconess. Even though, again, the term in the text is gender neutral. In early, an early uh, century, I want to say, I think it's fourth century, an early century church planting pamphlet contains the phrase, quote, let the deaconess visit the widow. Which clearly tells us that very early on, this was not only established officially, right? It became polity, but that it was not uncommon for the church to assume there was a need that required the function of something like a deaconess. The church fathers seem to regularly support the role and the importance of wise, trustworthy, spiritually mature women serving as a deaconess with the expressed primary concern of ministering to other women in the church, Titus 2, and even to children. There's places, I didn't notate it, there's places in the New Testament where Paul denotes that especially. In fact, their service often was such that they ministered to women in ways that would be perhaps inappropriate for a man to do so, to perhaps compromise both reputations, or they would simply be ill-effective. I don't know very many men who are awesome at training young women on how to be excellent young women. Right? Men? They're all a bit of a mystery to us, aren't they? Old and young and everything in between. I don't think we're going to Titus 2 teach young women how to be excellent mothers. We can try hard and the Lord is gracious where there is a need, but our service to them would likely be not very effective. The New Testament scriptures laid the pattern, the early church developed the policy, and Hillcrest affirms in our constitution and bylaws, women can be deaconesses. But like Phoebe, you don't need an official office to be a servant. We've got many, several godly women in Hillcrest who are wise. I value their input. I value their opinion. They, they are most sacrificial servants, especially in serving the women and the young women of our church. What the New Testament explicitly forbids is women in the church to hold the office of pastor elder. Paul says it clearly in 1 Timothy 2 that women are not to teach men nor exercise spiritual authority over men. And since both of those things come along with the office of pastor elder, women are not permitted to be called or function as pastor, elder. Now, concerning these offices, there are two helpful phrases Alistair Begg offers. I'd like to share them with you. The first one is function, not value. Function, not value. That women can serve in the diaconate, as it is called, as deacons, that women and men can both serve as deacons, but only men can serve as pastors, is not a question of value, but merely a question of function. 
This is what elders do, and this is what deacons do. Deacons are servants. Elders are overseers. They both need to know the scriptures, both groups, but they are not both charged with teaching the scriptures. As such, each group fulfills their duty, not because one is more valuable, but because each duty is specific. They complement each other. So when it comes to women not being permitted to serve as elders, it's not a question of the value placed on godly women, but simply our obedience to the clear commands and wisdom of the scriptures. It's a matter of God's calling for men to function in that particular role, not the church valuing men over women. Now, this has been misrepresented. This insistence on scriptural fidelity has been both abused by men in the church in history, degrading the contributions of women, and it has been mischaracterized by opponents of the church saying that we are misogynistic or oppressive or any number of other, what is it, adverb? Is it an adverb? Misogynistic, oppressive, are those adjectives? Bible, not grammar, all right? That's my... Perhaps if women's contributions were more highly honored, as Paul does here, then the women's liberation movement wouldn't have ever gotten a foothold in the church, driving women to aspire to an office the Bible clearly earmarks out exclusively for men. Maybe if this wasn't mischaracterized in the church this would have never invaded the church. At least that was Dr. J. Vernon McGee's hypothesis. I tend to agree, although I think that we're all sinners, so we're gonna ruin everything, even the church, constantly. What's important here is that Paul doesn't blush. You notice that? Like he just praises Phoebe and her contribution. He doesn't qualify it. He doesn't blush. And then when he writes to Timothy and he says, women may not exercise spiritual authority over men or teach men in the church, he also doesn't blush. And it seems to me that Phoebe may have very well been in Paul's physical presence as he orated to the scribe who wrote the letter to Timothy and Phoebe would not have been offended or oppressed You see, the two things are not in competition with one another. Paul doesn't blush. Neither in praising Phoebe's contribution and her importance to the ministry of the gospel, nor when he restricts the office of pastor to men. He isn't embarrassed. He is matter of fact. We should be the same. Why? Because it's not a matter of value. It's a matter of function. It's a matter of obedience, not oppression. The second phrase that's helpful from Alistair is service, not status. Service, not status. Holding church office like deacon or elder is never about status. At least, it's not supposed to be. And so whenever you find it becoming that, run. 
Holding church office is never about status. Jesus decried this type of thinking when he spoke so harshly of the way the scribes and Pharisees walked through town centers being revered and gawked at. Historically, whatever you were doing, if a, if a Pharisee walked through the alleyway, you would stop your labor and you would lower your gaze until they passed. Gross. Now, I think in many ways there was some purity of heart here. These men serve a vital function. They are the teachers of the law, the teachers of the scriptures. They're being honored, perhaps, for their service. Okay, but it was certainly abused. That went to the next level. Jesus said it like this in the NIV. I appreciate uh, the, the phrasing the best. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide, that's their garments, and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi. You have one teacher, you are all brothers. See, In sharp contrast to that hierarchy of status, the church is not to have a society of men of status. We are to have men and women of service. To hold the office of elder is a sobering and diligent affair, but it's not a status symbol. In fact, Paul in Romans 15 refers to himself as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? It's a, it's a phrase that I typically incorporate into a wedding, wedding vows, right? By the authority vested in me in the state of North Carolina and as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I now pronounce you husband and wife. A minister of the gospel. Sounds, hmm, doesn't it? Like it makes you want to kind of, you know, ooh, uh, what do you do? I'm a minister of the gospel, right? I'm going to pull that one out at a dinner party sometime soon. A minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people go, did you just make your voice a little lower when you said that? I did. <laughs> but what was the word that Paul used when he says minister? The word in Greek translated to English minister. Was it apostle? No. Was it pastor, shepherd, elder? No. It was liturgios, from which we get the word liturgy. He was saying, I'm a servant of the practical order of the church. A servant of the practical order of the church. A minister is simply one who oversees the liturgy. It's the order of operations. He is an apostle, but he calls himself a servant. Because to hold any form of office in the church is about Service, not status. And when that gets mixed up, pride and abuse invades and much harm comes to the body of Christ and her reputation among the lost. Well, that's more than enough on that. We could say much more, but for our purposes today, I think it's helpful just to note that Paul's observable heart for people begins with honoring a special woman, Phoebe, valued for her service to the gospel. What a reputation. Paul's observable heart for people, number two, continues with a stirring list. 
continues with a stirring list. As I mentioned, 33 names, 25 men, 8 women, 2 dozen special friends in Rome, 9 with Paul in Corinth where he's writing this letter. We won't take the time to mention what we know or don't know about each of these individuals. There are a few by way of example I'd like to highlight. Verse 10. The second half reads, Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Aristobulus. Now, in Rome there lived a grandson of Herod the Great. You know Herod the Great. You know the Christmas story. The wise men came from the east. They saw the star in the heavens that told them by God's decree that the king of the Jews was born. So they came to the natural place, which is the palace in Jerusalem. The king is born. We saw his star. Herod the Great said, oh, really? Well, I don't know where he is, but when you find him, let me know where he is so that I too can kill him. I mean, worship him. And the, the, the wise men went, they found Jesus in the stable, and, and then when they left, they were warned by an angel, don't go back to Herod, he has ill intentions. And so then later, Herod realized that he was tricked, he was duped. The wise men didn't come back and tell him where the new king is so that he could kill him, and so Herod had all the babies two years and under in this region slaughtered, and the mourning was stuff of prophecy, as it would be. All the baby boys. Herod was a maniacal, power-hungry king. He had a grandson named Aristobulus who lived in Rome. Might it be that the grandson of the maniacal king bent his knee to the king of kings? It seems very likely so. As the timing, the location, and the name present too great a circumstance to dismiss. The fact that his name, Aristobulus, is accompanied by the next name, Herodian, meaning of the house of Herod, only serves to reinforce this idea. The fact that he had a household further reinforces the idea, for the grandson of Herod the Great would have been an inheritor of wealth and people. Aristobulus by this time is most likely deceased, but his legacy of faithfulness lives on. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. The faithful man in Christ will have a faithful household that outlives him. Aristobulus isn't there, but his family is there, and they are the testament to his faithfulness. They are the fruit of his ministry. Dads, on Father's Day, let this be an encouragement and a challenge to us. May our legacy of gospel faithfulness outlive our bodies. May our children see in us a genuineness of faith that assures them that their dad didn't just talk the talk on Sundays, but that we lived it every day with consistency and integrity. Men, gather your family up for family worship. I've said it before, but it's worth repeating. In the Puritan era, 
a father were neglecting to lead his family in nightly times of family worship and catechesis, he would be called upon by the church elders and brought under formal church discipline, leading to potential excommunication if you did not do what? Have nightly family worship. So grave was this task. We would do well to recapture that sense of duty and sobriety. Aristobulus, a faithful man with a Christian legacy, born into a heathen family redeemed by Jesus. Amen? That's good stuff. The second name is just after in verse 13. My sons will thank me today that I did not name any of them after this gentleman, Rufus. It just sounds like the name of that hyena from the Lion King who's got the crazy eyes and his tongue hanging out of his mouth and he's like chewing on his own leg, right? You know the hyena I'm talking about from the Lion King. Come on, people. It's like the greatest movie, right? The greatest animated film probably ever, right? Rufus. Looks just like a Rufus. Now, Rufus, another historical note. There was a man named Siren, Simon of Cyrene. And he was in Jerusalem to observe the Passover feast when suddenly a crowd formed and a path was made. A man was stumbling under the weight of a log and a Roman soldier grabbed Simon of Cyrene and said, you carry his cross. Simon of Cyrene was called upon to carry the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus as he was too beaten and bloodied and weak physically to do so. He had two sons, Alexander and Rufus. Mark chapter 15 records Simon of Cyrene. He had two sons, Alexander and Rufus. Why would Mark make this note about his son's names? Well, most historians agree that by the time Mark wrote his gospel, Alexander and Rufus were well known among the Christians. And now Rufus is potentially living in Rome with the church there. And by the time, you know, by the time Paul writes this letter, Rufus is perhaps, you know, he's got children of his own, telling them the story of his grandfather who carried the cross of Jesus. Simon came to Jerusalem to observe the Passover, but God had bigger plans in store for him and in store for his family. Isn't that neat? Paul's heart for people includes this list of stirring names. Friends, behind each name is an equally amazing story. But we have to conclude our time. So Paul's heart for people begins with a special woman. It includes this stirring list of names. And number three, it ends with a marvelous implication. It ends with a marvelous implication. William Barclay says this list of names contains one of the great hidden romances of the New Testament. 
not in the sense of erotic romance, but rather sweet, intertwined, unique, serendipitous, unexpected. What other hidden gems lie beneath these names? Very many indeed. Each of these names represents a person, in some cases an entire family, rescued by the grace of Jesus. Rufus perhaps watched as his father carried the cross of Jesus. At minimum, he heard the story and the look in his father's face when he recounted the man so badly beaten he could not bear the weight of the object of his crucifixion. Simon came to observe a feast, but God intended to redeem a family. Simon came to participate in the shadow of things to come. Jesus showed him the reality. Aristobulus was the inheritor of some wealth and status and probably many servants, but also a terrible legacy. Aristobulus was the, the, the grandson to a mass murderer. He might have wished he was not linked to such a man. But then again, the Lord knows. Isn't it encouraging to know that, that this man was not destined to repeat the sins of his grandfather? Isn't it encouraging to know that the blood of Jesus applied to your account runs deeper than DNA? In one case, with Rufus, a family heritage is passed on from one generation to the next in the gospel of Jesus. In another, a family heritage is redefined altogether. You are not doomed to repeat the patterns in which you were raised. You are not your father. You are not your mother. Ezekiel 18 reminds us that God deals with each generation individually. No matter the shame nor the joy of your family lineage, you will stand before the Lord on your own two feet, either redeemed by the blood of Jesus or all alone. I recommend the former. Well, finally, after these two men, and their, the marvelous implication of what the gospel does in a family, our time concludes where it began, with Phoebe. Phoebe, the woman named after the Greek goddess Diana. You might know the story in Acts where Paul was teaching about the ills of idol worship. There at the place where the temple of Artemis stood. Artemis, Diana, Phoebe. All three names for the same idol, the same false god. Here is Phoebe, no doubt named after the Greek goddess. Her parents, no doubt, named her as you would, hoping to pay homage to a false deity. Their highest dreams for her were perhaps to serve in the temple of Artemis. And maybe she did for a season. We don't know. Maybe she did. But then by God's grace, this one who was brought up to serve the gods of men became a servant of the God of all creation. Many Greeks at the time, when they became Christians, would adopt a new name, 
They call it their given Christian name. Right? It's a symbol of their newness in Christ, but not Phoebe. She seemed to wear the name like a badge of honor. What her parents, what a sin nature, what Satan intended for evil, God intends for good. And you know, unlike the name Jezebel, Phoebe has gone down in history as a, a precious, sweet, and joyful name. I haven't met many Phoebes, but I've never met a Jezebel. But you might argue that that name would never really be known to history in the way that it is today if it were not for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, no matter who you are, who your family is, what's in your past, Jesus makes all things new. When God stirs our hearts to repentance and we respond with those precious words of faith, by grace we are saved. Saved from a former way of life like Phoebe, saved from a shadow of religion to the, general, general, the genuine article like Rufus, saved from a disgraceful family heritage like Aristobulus. There is no past too dark, no shame too great, no family heritage too messy that the blood of Christ can't cleanse. And so the question, of course, this morning is, like Phoebe, like Aristobulus, like Rufus, do you know him? And if so, are you prepared to share him? I encourage you to do as my wife does. Pray for opportunities this week to share your faith, friends. Because just as each of these names in Romans 16 represents a life, a soul, a personality, an individual with ambitions and dreams and hopes and parents and perhaps children, so too each car that you pass on your way from this campus represents a precious soul created in God's image. They have a name, they have a story, they have a heritage, they have a reputation, they have a past, and they have a future. Jesus said the fields are ripe with harvest. Will you leave here with sickle in hand and love people the way Paul obviously did? Well, I'll leave that with you to decide. Father, thank you for your word and how in, in every corner uh, we find these beautiful gospel pictures we thank you that just as you have remade many of these individuals in the historical biblical account, so too you have remade and redefined us. Lord, may you stir our hearts to confess our sin and our sinfulness, to confess our desperate need for you to escape the shame of our former way of life to escape the dread of repeating the sins of former generations and to perhaps begin a new legacy like Simon of Cyrene did for Rufus and like Phoebe did for so many whom she served. 
Well, may your spirit compel us to action. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand for one last song, friends.